0: Our first speaker this afternoon, Associate Professor Benedette Richards, joins us from the University of Adelaide, where her research focuses on the nexus of ethics and the law in the context of medical treatment and specifically the issue of consent to medical treatment. Associate Professor Richards applies her research as chair of the Southern Adelaide Clinical Human Research Ethics Committee and is also a member of the NHMRC Embryo Research Licensing Committee. Associate Professor Richards is therefore well credentialed to speak to us this afternoon on the topic of innovation and professionalism and specifically the role of tribunals in regulating behaviour. Please welcome Associate Professor Richards. Thank you. Um, I, I kind of sat there this morning and thought, Oh, I was going to say that, oh, I was going to say that, and it's okay, because I've had similar conversations with some other people on the panel this afternoon. However, I'll be saying it differently, so. I, I do apologise for some of the repetition, but really, we are, we are all talking about similar themes and just pulling them together in slightly different ways. My presentation um, was really designed as a very basic um, presentation, providing an overview of the regulatory regime because we're really interested in the perception versus reality. We've raised that discussion this morning. So I thought, well, before we actually really delve into, into that perception reality gap too much, let's go right back to basics and say what the reality is. So this is a very um, straightforward just look at what the actual words of the acts are, what the uh, terms are that are relevant and what the regime is setting out to do. I'm really therefore looking at considering the goals of tribunals and how that um, has manifested itself and what the um, national act which of course I'm talking about the National Act, which came in in 2010, which we've been introduced to today. So I don't need to go into that too much. Um, we heard this morning that um, complaints, um, or that the that, that dealing with complaints, complaints can be a somewhat unwieldy process, and I wonder why that is, and I think that's something that, that can be investigated a little bit further and discussed further. Um, But also, I guess, a good starting point is, why are we even considering this? Well, the reason, and why is there this groundswell of um, people like Lord Saatchi um, trying to change the law? Um, And it's because there is this perception that the law is killing patients. Now, I'm not a medical doctor, but I'm reasonably confident that it's actually cancer that's killing the patients and not the law. So let's have a look at what the law is actually doing. The National Act, as you know, came in in 2010. It's it's really quite a hefty piece of legislation, over 200 sections. Sets out requirements for registration, facility for reviewing registration, reporting misconduct, those sorts of things. It is an enormous piece of regulatory material. I want to begin, however, with one of the broad statements of the objectives of the Act, which set out the guiding principles of the National Registration and Accreditation Scheme. And I think this is of great interest to everybody here today. It's to enable the continuous development of a flexible, responsive and sustainable Australian health workforce and to enable innovation in the education of and service delivery by health practitioners. So if the law is killing patients, why is our regulatory scheme actually grounded on a principle of innovation. We are actually beginning from a regulatory position of supporting innovation. Maybe we wanna insert there the um, silent or unsaid word which is responsible innovation. But it must be, as I said, it must be responsible innovation and it must be about appropriate provision of healthcare. And that's completely consistent with the common law. As we've discussed this morning, there's the two, there's the negligence regime and there's also the um, professional um, sanctions regime. So, like all of my law students, I asked Dr Google to help me with this when I went back to have a think about this and I thought, what am I going to do? So I went to the ARPRA website and I searched um, innovation, just the word innovation on the ARPRA website. It came up with 923 hits. Innovation is mentioned 923 times somewhere on the ARPRA website. I'm really sorry, I didn't read them all. I followed some of them and found I was going down a rabbit hole, but um, they didn't give me anything great that I want to report here. But it's definitely in the language, it's in the lexicon. And as far as an overview of the disciplinary actions, now um, Matthew gave us a really in-depth overview of a particular period of time. This is just straight taken from the annual report from 2015-16. 657,621 health practitioners in 14 professions were registered in Australia during that time. 1.5% were the subject of a notification and there were 10,082 notifications. And a national board can refer a matter to a tribunal for a hearing when the allegations involve the most serious unprofessional conduct, except of course here in Queensland where things are a little bit different. So I'll just leave Queensland to one side because I know nothing about it. South Australian, sorry. There were 175 national board matters decided by tribunals during this period. 84.6% resulted in disciplinary action, 10.3% in no further action, and 5.1 were withdrawn and did not proceed. I'm not quite sure exactly what all of that proves except that lawyers can talk about numbers sometimes, so we'll just leave it at that. So I looked through a summary of the tribunal findings um, and I I did actually read quite a lot of them, just sped read them to try and work out what was there because one gap that we've been talking about today is we actually don't know how many of these investigations are actually about innovation. So what did I find? I found, and believe me, I read a lot, and they got quite repetitive after a while. There were findings of Ill- illegal conduct, failure to disclose criminal records, selling of Class A drugs, stealing from patients, providing Nembitol to patients, falsifying patient records, masquerading as a psychologist, why? <laughs> uh, drug trafficking, sexual assault, purchasing heroin by provide- and providing false urine samples, Um, counselling of friends and family, and boundary crossing. In some cases, boundary leaping. (laughs) Which, when you're finding things a bit dull, is sometimes the most interesting uh, reading for the day. I did not find anything specifically relating to innovative treatment or untried treatment or anything completely outside of acceptable treatment. There was a few discussions about off-label use, and that's about as close as it got. Now, I did not pretend to read all of them. There's a lot of them. But I could not find, my my innovation hits didn't um, extend to any of these findings. This is not to say that it could not happen. And in fact, some of the critics um, of the Stop the Saatchi Bill movement in the United Kingdom, they said, well, of course, you're not going to find any cases about it, because doctors are not innovating, because they're scared of it. So there's not going to be any action. Now, we all know that's incorrect, because we do know that doctors are innovating. We saw some examples of it earlier. Medical treatment is advancing. We're still, you know people don't die from broken arms anymore. The other issue, I guess, which I can't ignore, is the one that was raised this morning, is that often the patients won't know that what's happened to them is is as a result of untried um, medical treatment. I would like to know if there was a change in language. If we said, you're not allowed to use the word innovation anymore, you've got to actually say to patients, we're experimenting. Now, there was a, you think that perhaps that's the language used to try and bolster some confidence in patients um, in certain areas, but I wonder, really, in your mainstream treatment where they do know that it's not something new, if a doctor actually said, you know, I've not done this before, so I'm just gonna experiment on you, what would happen? But if the doctor says, I'm gonna try some innovative treatment, then the patient says, innovative, cool, must be better. So there is that assumption linked to the language, but that's a slightly different discussion to be had. Um, Okay, I did say I was going to talk about the process, so that's what I'd better get back on to be doing. The current regime's been enforced since 2010, very well established, therefore, and under the National Act, an appropriate board or tribunal, some of this is um, going over old ground, that was gone over a little bit this morning, may determine that a health practitioner has acted in a manner that constitutes unsatisfactory professional performance, unprofessional conduct, or professional misconduct. So what does all of that mean? So let's have a look at what the actual wording is. We've seen that before today. We need to consider what is unsatisfactory professional performance, what is unprofessional conduct, what is professional misconduct. It's in escalating um, levels of badness, I guess. So professional misconduct is defined under the act to include conduct that is substantially below the standard reasonably expected of a registered health practitioner of an equivalent level of training or experience. And that really does um, match up to the common law, professional standard, widely accepted, whatever language you want to use. It's the same sort of test, just worded slightly differently. Um, It needs to be inconsistent with the practitioner being a fit and proper person to hold registration of the profession. Unprofessional conduct is quite broad, improper or unethical conduct in relation to professional practice and it does um, also categorise behaviour and that requires reference to external evidence such as codes of conduct and other regulatory instruments, which I think Cameron's going to talk about a bit, maybe. Um, So, to amount to professional misconduct, there needs to be evidence of a pattern of behaviour. There needs to be more than one instance and I think we've spoken about that today as well. And there has to be a clear link with clinical practice. And that's not um, incredibly um, difficult to uh, establish. There was recently a case where an anaesthetist who was involved in a um, a research um, trial, uh, he was no longer treating any of the patients, but he contacted them and breached confidentiality, and that was deemed to be unprofessional. Um, He argued that it was not linked to his clinical practice because he was um, uh, signed to the trial as a statistician, not as a clinician, and the tribunal said no, it's closely enough related. So that link to clinical practice um, can be um, established in a number of different ways. Professional misconduct of course is a more serious departure from accepted standards than a finding of unprofessional conduct that uh, those insightful words came from a case called Hussein. So in other words one's just worse than the other but we don't quite know exactly what they are it's just however whatever's determined um, so I'm, I'm going to sort of refer to a particular series of decisions that um, was the White series. He was a psychiatrist and he was not a very nice man, um, but he had a series of decisions and, against him and he was found um, to have engaged in unsatisfactory professional performance, unprofessional conduct and professional misconduct. He was really bad. He did a lot of different things. So it's actually quite an insightful case, series of cases because it does actually address each of the three levels. Um, and the interesting thing is though, under this particular decision or decisions, they said that whilst there are differences in wordings, the import is minimal. They said it was inconsequential. So I wonder why there are the three different levels. I guess it's because of the different sanctions. Um, From a practical point of view, they talked about the expectation of public and peers. They said they would be ascertained by reference to those in the profession with equivalent training and experience and by the rules, codes, regulations and guidelines of the profession. So it's external, evidence of what's appropriate under the circumstances. Once again, I think this shows that it's not too different to your um, common law professional standard. Um, They talked about, um, they went to the Oxford Dictionary and the Collins Dictionaries to try and work out substantially below. They concluded that to be substantially below the expected standard and therefore to amount to misconduct, the registrant's conduct must be shown to be a high degree below the standards expected of a registrant with equivalent training and experience. So there's all these different sort of um, words, of descriptive words used, but there is nothing really certain about what is substantially below. Again it's a matter of evidence and that's really what happens, they went through a very meticulous. Um, consideration of what he had and had not done. He did a whole lot of different things. He um, disclosed his mobile phone number, was sort of the most um, innocuous, right through to providing inappropriate medical advice, making disparaging comments about professional colleagues, advising her that she really needs to improve her social life. So get onto this wonderful thing called RSVP.com. He then signed up himself and pursued her in there and um, engaged in a sexual relationship with her. Um, Guess which one was the most serious? The interesting thing in this particular decision is that he was not deregistered immediately. It was not until the final decision when he was completely ignoring the limitations on his practice that they said actually you really can't be doing this anymore he was supposed to tell his patients he was supposed to be supervised and he just kept ignoring all of those so finally at the end he was deregistered but it took a great push so why what is this trying to what am i why am i sort of talking about this it's coming back to what we talked about this morning it's because the actual role of the tribunal it's to be protective it's not to be punitive it's not to be and by extrapolation the sorts of things we're talking about here it's not to control a doctor it's not to stop them from doing things it's to protect the patients that's what the tribunal is there for the key points to take away from white because I am actually managing to run out of time were that they talked about unsatisfactory professional conduct involving be falling below the standard expected by the public and one's peers? It's measured in a, professional misconduct is measured in a similar manner, but involves falling substantially below, so you're just below or you're substantially below. And what process Oh Ooh. how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, that was a bit frightening. I've gone down to you, Tina. Uh, go there. Nope, it's gone strange. That's Wendy, that's me. I'm not touching anything. Right, and I'll go to... Mm-hmm. Last viewed, will it go to that? Nope. Sorry, I don't even know what happened there. It just got a bit carried away with itself. Um, I was talking about what's the process followed by the tribunal. And this was set out here, and I know my time is up, so I'm gonna say it very, very fast. Um, They talked about it in this particular decision, and they said that the tribunal is established pursuant to that division. And in conducting an inquiry, the tribunal may conduct these proceedings as it thinks fit. So it's quite a broad mandate. So there's a d- number of different sorts of facts that can be looked at and evidence that can be looked at. So, um, and it's not bound to observe the rules of law governing the admission of evidence. So it's not actually bound to all the same rules of evidence that a court of law is bound to. And the final. This is the code. And so my final points really are that challenging behaviour is not an absolute. The tribunal can address, the, address an inquiry as it sees fit. It can and will refer to extraneous material, focuses on the protection of um, the public, but I think significantly innovation itself is not sufficient for grounds for a challenge. What is sufficient for grounds for a challenge is inappropriate conduct. It's not innovation per se.